As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey parents, what you're about to listen to is the audio recording of my interview with Jill Thomas, who is a licensed mental health therapist. And I spoke with her for about an hour about how to help your preteen or teenager manage stress and anxiety. So this is the this is the same audio that you'd see in the recorded video that's being posted to our YouTube and Facebook pages, but we wanted to also post the audio in this podcast as a bonus in case just listening to the audio is going to be more convenient for you. And this this runs about an hour. Jill's got lots of great stuff to say. Hopefully it's helpful for you. Enjoy. Thanks, parents. Hi, parents. Thank you for joining us for this virtual parent seminar. I'm joined by Jill Thomas. She's a licensed mental health therapist. She currently works at Heartland Christian Counseling, and she's been doing mental health therapy for the past 10 years. This is something that we were going to do even before the world changed, but now this might be more valuable than ever. So, Jill, thanks for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. We just we want to respect your time and, and the time of the parents out there watching. And so to get us started, I'd love for you to just clarify what you mean. This is all about how you help your kids walk through stress and anxiety in your preteen and, and in your teen's life. But what do you specifically mean? What are we going to be talking about today when we refer to anxiety? Right. So um, having a feeling of being anxious is not a bad thing. We all have a spectrum of emotions that we feel. We're human. We're supposed to feel those. Um, so what we're going to be talking about today isn't necessarily just the feeling of being anxious or anxiety. It's more of when does it become where you're overly fearful, um, you're having that anxious feeling when it's not necessary, or the severity of the way you're feeling it is way beyond what the situation calls for, and it starts to be disruptive to your health and your life. So we're mostly going to be focusing on today um, when um, preteens and teens are struggling with that level of anxiety where it's starting to become disruptive. All right. So with that being said, let's dive right in. First question, Jill, what are the signs and symptoms of anxiety in preteens or teens? Yeah, so what we see a lot um, is excessive worrying, racing thoughts, um, which affects their ability to focus. A lot of times they have trouble concentrating. Um, They often complain of difficulties sleeping or staying asleep. Uh, Somatic complaints like headaches, stomach aches. Uh, The anxiety will manifest in a physical way and cause physical symptoms like that. 
Um, and then obviously in preteens and teenagers, it escalates their um, moodiness and irritability. So a lot of times parents won't realize that their child has anxiety because they just seem angry and irritable. Um, and really it, it's the anxiety behind that that's contributing. How, how would a parent, do you have any insight on how to help a parent discern the difference between, you know, if they're seeing their child act out, how, how could they go about discerning whether it is just a, a child, you know, being a child or a teenager being a teenager, and then some of this more legitimate anxiety that you're talking about? Um, usually when kids have anxiety, they afterwards feel a ton of remorse and sadness about the way that they acted because they were so out of control. And it's the anxiety that's causing them to feel out of control and they're desperately needing control. And that can make them appear very bossy and controlling and rigid in their thinking and stubborn and that sort of thing. But when parents see them um, kind of break down later on, that's usually a sign, okay, there's something more going on here than just them, you know, pushing the boundaries and being rebellious and being like, whatever, mom, I don't care. Um, that looks a little different. And then anxiety is also going to show up in different places. So your child might avoid certain things like school or going to dance class, or they might avoid um, seeing certain people or social situations that they didn't used to avoid. And it's the anxiety causing them to want to avoid those things because they're triggering does that make sense? So they're, you're going to see it in other areas than just like lashing out or getting angry. You're going to see more symptoms than that if it's true anxiety. Yeah. So if, if a parent is seeing their child act out, what I hear you saying is wait till, wait till the end almost. Uh, let, let see how the child ends up on the other side of it and, and how they feel or how they act or react afterward is going to give you a lot of insight. Right. If they have true anxiety and they're struggling, you're going to see it over a period of time too, and it's going to be a pattern in their, in their emotions and their behavior. It's not going to be a once in a while, you took my cell phone away and I'm lashing out kind of thing. So I would ask parents to maybe look for those patterns of like their child seeming different. And um, also, if they're having trouble discerning it, it makes sense. They could always take their child in to see a counselor who is trained and an expert on how to diagnose and how to discern between is there really an issue here or is there not. Um, so they could always take them in, too, just to say, hey, I don't know if they need counseling, but I also don't know what's going on here, and I need some help figuring it out. So this, this is where the, the current circumstance makes things even more complicated there is so much change going on in kids' lives, and there are so many things that they used to be able to do that they can't do anymore. Mm -hmm. So, and you might be learning this right along with us, what the, what the mental health impact is with the quarantine and, and all of that. So it, it brings up the question of if a child is acting differently, how can a parent know if it's just because life is really different right now, or if it really is anxiety, or are those both the same thing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, what I think we're all going to suffer from through this is, um, on the best case scenario, an adjustment disorder, which in, in counseling and psychology, that is like the most mild 
disorder you can be diagnosed with. And it just means you've gone through something stressful that you've had to adjust to, and it's causing symptoms you didn't have before. But once you've made that adjustment, those symptoms go away. So it's not a, a major concern. But more on the extreme end, we might also see a lot of um, post-traumatic stress or acute stress disorder or generalized anxiety disorder come out of this where maybe the child was already struggling a little bit and they were already predisposed to it. And then having a crisis like this happen just kind of sent it into full swing. Um, So it, it could be either one of those or somewhere in between a spectrum of best case and worst case scenario. I think the best thing we can do is just be attuned to each other mm-hmm. and talk about it and be there for each other and show each other a lot of grace in this process. And, um, you know, a preteen and a teenager is going to be able to have a conversation with their parent about if they think they need to talk to somebody. Um, so I think for them, it's just keeping open lines of communication and checking in with each other. And thankfully, parents are the ones who know their kids best. And so if anybody's going to be able to discern whether it's, whether it's a, a serious situation or, or how their child normally acts, the, the parent's going to be the one who can best discern that, even though it might not be an exact science. Mm-hmm. That's great. Okay, we're going to move on. How does anxiety present itself in young children versus teenagers? And, and how can that look different in how anxiety presents itself in adults? So there's a lot of similarities, but where I see differences is in young children, you see a lot more of the separation anxiety. So a lot more of the crying and resisting going to school or daycare. Um, They become a lot more clingy to their parent. They show a lot of somatic complaints like stomach aches and headaches. You see a lot more nightmares and night terrors in really young kids. They want to sleep on the floor of their parents' bedroom or that sort of thing. Um... And then teenagers, they're already more independent. So with teenagers, sometimes you see it more in their self-esteem being pretty low. They often will be very perfectionistic. It has to be perfect or it's a total failure. They start to get very rigid in their thinking. So, you know, it's, it's got to be this way or the world is ending kind of extreme thinking. You see that a lot more in teenagers um, and then with adults, they're able to really identify their thoughts better because they're cognitively advanced (laughs) compared to kids. Um, So with adults, we see a lot of ruminating thoughts. So they'll be able to say, I had this scary thought and I thought about it over and over and over and I couldn't get it out of my head and, and I was just anxious the whole day. And so with them, you'll see a lot more of thinking errors, like what they're thinking isn't true. But adults are usually able to tell you what that thought is, whereas the tricky thing with kids and teenagers is they are having those thoughts, but they're not always aware that they're having those thoughts, and that's what's fueling the anxiety. So so it can be a little trickier figuring out what are they thinking that's causing them to be so worked up. I'm going to ask a follow-up to that, which is yeah. going to take us a little bit off track, but given the present circumstances, <laughs> yeah. I think it will be applicable for for those adults out there, they're they're watching right now because they care about their kids, but a lot of the parents are feeling some intense anxiety themselves right now. What's one practical step that you would encourage parents to take if they're wondering about their own mental health, if if parents are sensing that their own level of anxiety is starting to affect their daily life in negative ways? What's what's one thing? parents could do for themselves yeah because if parents aren't healthy and well themselves they're not going to be able to care well for their kids right yeah um 
I would say with with parents, they're going to probably have a lot of um, scary thoughts right now. But someone who's able to cope with their feelings of anxiety will have those thoughts, but they'll be fleeting. They'll have the intense thought or the intrusive thought. It'll cause anxiety, but then they'll talk themselves through it. They'll use logic and reasoning and facts and what do I know is true, and they'll move on. Someone that's really struggling with anxiety can't just move on from it. It gets stuck, and those thoughts are getting more and more intense, and now it's worst-case scenario, and now it's actually affecting my behavior and how I treat other people or what I do with my day. I'm not sleeping at night. You know, I'm not taking care of myself. That sort of thing is when those intrusive thoughts have really taken hold and they're just cycling in the brain over and over and over again. Um, so I would really encourage parents to write those thoughts down, tell your spouse or your friend, not your kids, we don't want to put that on them, but tell somebody you trust the types of thoughts you're having and get it out. And if you can breathe and accept it and tell yourself truth and move on, then considering the circumstances, you're, you're in a pretty good spot. That's, that's really helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Why, even before the world changed significantly, it seemed like anxiety was, was becoming more prevalent in young people. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think that is the case? Yeah, this is kind of a troubling thing in the mental health world right now is we're seeing anxiety happen more frequently and in younger and younger kids than we've ever seen it before. I think the latest research that's come out said that one in three teens will have a clinical anxiety disorder. So whether they're getting treatment or not maybe, you know, changes the numbers, but they could be diagnosed with a clinical anxiety disorder because they're at that level of anxiety. That's one in three. I mean, that's, we've never seen numbers like that before. So, so there has been research on why are we seeing it more now Um, And a lot of it is our change in culture. Culture in America especially is so cutthroat, competitive, looking out for number one. I've got to be the best. There's a ton of pressure. There's a ton of comparison. And it gets to the point where it's so unhealthy and unrealistic. But young kids and teenagers don't realize how unrealistic it is. And they keep striving and striving and striving under these cultural and society's expectations. And they can never live up. And it just causes a lot of undue anxiety. The other thing that plays into that is social media and the internet. Um, My generation didn't have that in childhood. So we, the only information we had access to, what was happening right around us in our family, what our teacher was telling us, what the kid at school told us. Um, So our world was a lot smaller and more manageable. Now for kids and teenagers, their world has exploded. Something can happen on the other side of the world, and they'll know about it in seconds. If there's a school shooting on the other side of the nation, it'll be plastered all over their newsfeed, their cell phone notifications. Everyone will be talking about it. We didn't deal with that when I was a kid. So even in just one generation, we have seen information overload on these young people, and their brains are not developed enough to even have the capacity to know how to navigate that level of information input all the time. Just think if they have like a cell phone or a iPad or something, like how instantly they can have access to all these things and how many notifications they're getting during the day. And, oh, I have to get back to this text message. And, oh, somebody just sent me a, a Snapchat. And, oh, I got a DM in my Instagram. I mean, it is so constant that their brain is just on overload all the time. And so it, it creates this 
um, breeding ground for anxiety because then when they don't have that constant input, that constant um, stimulation, um, they feel anxious. They don't know how to just be still, how to be quiet, how to be bored, how to just use their imagination or think about something without Googling it. <laughs> and so, so they're struggling. The, the teens and the, and the kids we're seeing now are really struggling because their brain doesn't know how to just be quiet and still and calm. And so it's, even if they're being fed good information, it's so much um, and they're just, they're just getting all that stimulation, um, that it's, it's, it's not, um, it's not even something adults can handle very well. I think we struggle with anxiety more because of all we're exposed to and our brains are way more developed than theirs. I, I was going to say, <laughs> sound, sound like you're describing my own experience yeah. as an adult. <laughs> yeah, you know, Social media, cell phone saturated We don't world. know how to, we don't know how to still our minds and, and quiet it. And so... I mean, it's just things are just racing up there all the time. So in that light, do you think there are some aspects of our current situation with social distancing and many things being closed and activities being canceled? Not right now, but down the road, could could there be some positive outcomes from that? Do, do you foresee? I'm already, yeah, I'm already seeing some of the positive outcomes in my own house. Um, it's it's going to be real uncomfortable. But usually good changes that we make are uncomfortable. Mm. So if we can accept that and we can ride through the discomfort of not being on screens all the time, talking to people, even kids going through a hallway in a public school, you've got all this chatter and people talking to them and your conversation's getting interrupted. And I'm thinking about this, but I also need to get back to this person. We don't have that right now. So I think it's a really good thing if people embrace it and, and don't resist it. But just try to embrace this change because I think in the long run it could really be beneficial for people to live slower, unrushed lives where they have more space to just breathe and just be and not um, and just be present. You know, I'm just I was telling my husband the other day, we are more present with each other and with our kids because we're not rushing off to karate and hurry, we got to get fed. And then, oh, did you make sure to send that in? And oh, I have to go pick that up. We're not doing that. So we're able to just be present, not just physically, but mentally. We're there with each other. Our minds aren't somewhere else all the time. So I think that's uncomfortable because we're not in the habit of doing that. But I think it's really, really, really good to get into some of those healthier habits that maybe this pandemic is forcing us into right now. That's a really interesting perspective on this situation. And and so you're suggesting that some of the anxiety that kids or parents are feeling right now is simply due to change that's happening. B- besides the fact that our lives are changing so much, what what do you think are, are some of the key contributing factors to anxiety right now in the midst of, of our current situation? Yeah. Specifically for preteens and teens. Right. Well, for anxiety in general, really it comes from uncertainty. <laughs> And lack of control. Wow. So. We got plenty of opportunity for that right now. plenty of opportunity for that. So I'll distinguish it a little bit. So when we feel fear, um, that's usually because we're in danger or we're threatened in some way. And, And God gave us that emotion for a good reason because it helps us stay alive. You know, if you were on the edge of a cliff and you didn't feel fear, you might just walk right off of it. So fear is what causes us to be cautious 
it motivates us to change our behavior. I'm going to put my seatbelt on when I get in the car because I am fearful that if I got in an accident, I would be injured, right? So it's, that's not a bad thing. But when it comes to anxiety, a lot of times it's the uncertainty of the future, the unknowns, the things I'm not in control of. Um, I don't know how to navigate it. We don't like what's unfamiliar. That's uncomfortable for us. Um, so that sort of thing is the stuff we want to take a look at and try to address because those types of feelings, even though they're common, aren't necessarily beneficial. We want to use that stress to motivate us to make changes and to be wise in this time, but not just to sit and worry hmm. because that's not going to be helpful. I think I just read a quote the other day that said um, that fear doesn't take away tomorrow's troubles. It takes away the peace and the joy of today. And that's so true. It doesn't worry doesn't change our circumstances. It just it just changes our ability to even be present and cope with the moment. So, and uh, that's a fairly direct quote of Jesus from Matthew six, which which was one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Matthew six yeah. twenty five through thirty four, where he famously talks about don't worry. Notice the lilies of the field and the sparrows and. Yeah, he says each day has enough trouble of its own. Yeah. And seek first God's kingdom. So that's good advice. A little fun fact for you. That's actually the most frequent command in the Bible is do not fear. Do not Do fear. not be anxious about anything. So God knew we were going to be trying to control things and trying to predict what was going to happen and have some level of like certainty and security. And we live in a world that doesn't give us that. And it's not guaranteed to us. So... Um, if we can accept that and be okay with it and put our trust in something else, we'll be okay. This is great. Why is it so hard for kids, preteens, teens to control or overcome anxiety? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to be a little nerdy for a second and talk about the neuropsychology behind anxiety. I think if parents understand what's going on in in a child's brain, that's outside of their control, they can have a little bit more empathy for, for what the child is going through. So, um, our brains have something called an amygdala, which is like an almond sized part of your brain in the midbrain. And the amygdala's job is fight or flight. So if you, um, have someone cut you off in traffic, you go, (gasps) right. You react, your muscles tense up, you have that adrenaline rush and you just react. You don't have time to think. I yell things. (laughs) You don't have time to like think, what should I do in this situation? Oh, I should push on the brake. You'd be dead. You don't have time to think. Your amygdala kicks in and does the thinking for you. And it just puts you into that fight or flight response um, that causes you to save yourself. It's like an automatic reaction. Yes. So we all have that. Um, And and I want you to think of it kind of like a smoke detector. So when your brain senses smoke, senses something dangerous, that alarm goes off to help your your body and your brain kick into gear to keep you safe. Um, and so what what's hard for kids to control is that amygdala. We don't have that control over, oh, I should calm down. Someone just cut me off in traffic. Your body just kicks in automatically. Your brain just... Just, just goes there. The problem with anxiety is that smoke detector in our brain doesn't just go off when we're actually in danger, like someone's cutting us off in traffic. Their smoke alarm is going off all the time over things that aren't dangerous. So in therapy, we call it, you know, the difference between your house being on fire and burnt toast. 
So someone doesn't come to therapy if their smoke detector only goes off when the house is on fire because they need to get out of the house. But what I see is kids and teens where their smoke alarm is going off and it's burnt toast, but they are acting like the house is on fire. So what the parent sees is the reaction of that high level of anxiety when it's just burnt toast. And you're saying, hey, kid, it's just burnt toast. It's no big deal. Prom just got canceled. It's no big deal. Or you don't like that guy anyway. He just broke up with you. It's no big deal. But they're feeling like the house is on fire. Like, like their brain is reacting as if it is a, a very severe situation and they need to react very severely. And kids and teens just can't snap out of that. The front part of your brain, that prefrontal cortex that does all the logical reasoning and decision-making and impulse control, that isn't fully developed until you're 25. So the kids in their homes, they don't have that prefrontal cortex to kick in all the way and say, oh, it's okay, amygdala, calm down. It's just burnt toast. It's not a big deal. And they can't just reason through it. Even as adults, we can't always reason through anxiousness sometimes. Um, so I think parents need to just understand that there is something going on in their brain that, that, that child doesn't have control over. It's an automatic response. And for whatever reason, their amygdala is like overactive and it's going off all the time when it doesn't need to be. So even though a parent as a mature adult who has perspective on an anxiety causing situation that their child is going through the parent might rightfully discern that this really isn't that big of a deal. If it feels like a big deal, if the smoke alarm is going off, you as a parent saying, it's not that big of a deal. And even though that might be true, yeah. you you just saying that might not be helpful because it feels so real to the, to right. the child. Because the parent is thinking with their prefrontal cortex, yes. their frontal lobe, and the, the child is reacting in their midbrain, their emotional brain. And so the kid just can't jump there. The parent has to come and meet the kid where they're at. And only adults have the ability to do that. We don't have the ability to say to the child, come up to my level. Because mm. we've spent years teaching our brains how to go from the midbrain to the frontal brain to say, okay, you can calm down. I was alerted, but now I'm calming down because I'm okay. You know, it takes a lot longer and it's a lot harder for kids and teenagers to do that. So that, that's a great analogy. We need to, in those moments as adults, we need to meet kids in that place as opposed to expecting them to come to our place where right. we're using that prefrontal cortex. So, so what does that look like? How, how do adults meet kids in that place? Yeah. So one thing that we, we, we talk about a lot in counseling is the three C's, calm, connect, correct. And I'm a parent and I can relate to other parents that struggle with this. What we want to do is we just want to come in and correct, which would be the parent that would say, why are you overreacting? It's not that big of a deal, blah, blah, blah. They're trying to correct the child's thinking, but they're skipping the most important steps, which is calm and connect first. And that's meeting the child where they're at. They can't calm down, shut off the smoke alarm. If you're just saying the house isn't on fire, it's fine. The house isn't on fire. That smoke alarm is still sounding the same as if the house was on fire. It doesn't distinguish between the two. Um, so for parents to come and first be calm themselves mm -hmm. and help calm the child, you know, for some it's just they need space. For some they need a hug. For some they just need their parent to talk to them in a calm tone. Um, but stay calm first and then connect with the child in some way. And usually the best way to connect with a preteen or a teenager 
is with empathy and validation. So they want to know that the way that I'm feeling, the way that I'm thinking, what I'm going through is, is accepted by you, even if you don't like it, and you can relate to me. And if you can try to relate to them, even if you're not feeling what they're feeling, if you can try to empathize of like, I understand why for them this feels that way and it's this difficult. Even though as a parent it's hard for, our, for us to see our kids struggling and feeling those unpleasant feelings, we don't need to avoid it completely and get just fix it for them because we can't. But what we can do is connect with them and help lead them through that anxiety and until they get to a place where they're calm and they can use their frontal lobe and then we can say, okay, let's reason through this. Let's talk about is worst case scenario really realistic? But I think as parents, we jump to that corrective, well, that's not realistic. But because of what they're feeling emotionally and that smoke alarm is going off, they can't hear us. It's going in one ear and out the other. We have to do the calm, do the connect, and then get to the correct. If that makes sense. Definitely. What about the parents out there who would say, I'm just, I'm not naturally an empathetic person. I'm, you know, I've, I have more of a let's get it done kind of mindset. I just, yeah. just want to talk about facts. Um, and this is, I think people may stereotypically think that it falls along the lines of, you know, women are the more empathetic yeah, and men are not. Sure. But I know that's, that's not the case for all couples. So right. whether it's a mom or a dad who's saying, I'm just, uh, that sounds like something that my spouse would handle better than me. For those parents who, who want to grow in that skill yeah. of following those three C's, you know, they're, they're more prone to jump to that, the third C. For the parents who struggle to, to calm and connect, what can they do to, to develop that ability or yeah. to grow that ability? I can empathize with those parents because I understand they may have grown up in a generation or in a household where their empathy wasn't shown to them or taught to them. So I don't want to criticize anyone or make anyone feel bad if that's a struggle for them. Um, but we can't teach our kids something we don't know ourselves. So I would really encourage those parents that struggle to do that and it feels unnatural to just be vulnerable and humble and just step into it anyway, even if they're not good at it, to just try saying, I understand you feel blah, blah, blah about this. Even just saying that statement might feel uncomfortable for them, or I can see you're really um, worked up about this, or I can see you're really disappointed about the news you just heard. Just saying something like that might feel really uncomfortable for that parent, but the more they do it, the more comfortable they're going to get um, being that way, and that's how they can connect and relate to their child. Um, especially with the preteens and teenagers, you're not having to be so authoritative over them anymore because they're not little kids walking out into traffic. You're wanting to try to relate to them more on, on a connection on a relational level because they're trying to become independent. And that connection's going to get lost if you can't empathize. And so it does, it, it's hard. And maybe um, if the other spouse is better at it, they can like help each other out. Um, but it shouldn't just land on one parent or the other. It really, it, it really just needs to be how we interact with each other because that's what's going to calm that child down. Saying, like, pull it together. You need to get into that school right now or you need to put your karate uniform on right now or you need to go to ballet. You're going to be late and they're having anxiety. Like, that's not helpful. But if they can say, hey, I know you're struggling. I know it seems scary. You know, that sort of thing. It might feel uncomfortable for the parent, but it's not always going to feel 
that way. Um, so I would encourage them to jump into it anyway. And I, I do work with parents on that. Sometimes I do a session with the child and then I do the next session with the parent just working on those skills of how do I empathize with them when I'm frustrated or when I don't understand what they're going through or, or whatever. And, and you're, not, you're not necessarily saying that parents need to uh, agree or, right. or affirm what a student is feeling because, again, right. what they might be feeling or, or thinking, that it, it might be completely untrue. Right. But what you are doing is acknowledging the reality yeah. that the student is experiencing right. in that moment. Yeah. Think about it how adults problem solve or like deal with conflict. Like you can validate your coworker even if you don't agree with them when you're in a meeting. You might not agree with their approach, but you don't have to be critical and harsh. You can say, oh, I can see how you would think that that would be a better way to do it. Or I understand that that's how you want us to go forward. You know, you can validate them and understand their perspective without steamrolling them. And so I think parents do make that mistake sometimes where they think if I empathize with my child, I'm just like, you know, making it okay, or I'm just condoning what they're doing or sweeping it under the or rug, sweeping it under the rug, you know, which sweeping it under the rug would really just be ignoring the problem altogether or just trying to fix it for them without navigating the hard feelings. And I want to encourage parents to not be afraid to navigate those hard feelings because if you're uncomfortable, just imagine how much more uncomfortable it is for your child who's actually feeling the weight of all of that anxiety. So as parents, we need to just be brave and we need to be strong and we need to be willing to have those hard conversations. We need to be willing to step into those hard feelings and help take some of the weight off of our kids of tell me how, how it feels having school canceled, you know, know, explain to me like what, what it's like for you when you, you can't get together with your friends. Like I can't imagine what you're going through. I understand it must be really hard. Um, it's, a, it's easy for me to say that because I'm a therapist and I, and I talk like that all the time. I work with people like that all the time. So I don't expect parents to sound <laughs> like that um, right off the bat. But I, I would hope that they would know that they're really loving their children well if they're also learning as a parent how to connect with them in that way through empathy. And we're, it's kind of all coming full circle now. That's where an understanding of where your ch- kids are at with their cognitive maturity uh, to, to know that their brains just aren't fully functioned yet. Right. I, it, I think that can allow adults to have more empathy when students react in a way that seems irrational or is definitely untrue. Mm-hmm. But if we can remember that their brain's not fully formed, it, right. it, it, they, they don't have that ability yet. So I've got little kids at home <laughs> and I always share the story of like when my, you know, one-year-old was hungry and dinner wasn't ready yet, he started eating out of the trash can. He started going in there and getting, like, old chicken or something. And I said, no, 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 you can't eat out of there. We Dinner's not ready yet. You can't eat that. Get out of the trash can. And he just, like, flails on the floor and throws, like, an epic toddler tantrum. I could have said, quit crying. Dinner's almost ready. What are you doing? Dragging him out of the kitchen. But what I did was I got down on his level and I said, I know you're hungry, buddy. I know it's hard to be patient. I know you need to wait. How about you can have this, you know, you can have these carrots right now and go sit at the table and dinner will be ready soon or you can just wait. Like I gave him a choice. You can have this or you can just wait. You still can't eat out of the trash can. So that's an example. Like I'm not condoning eating out of the trash can. I'm not saying like, oh, go ahead and do it. 
but I'm still empathizing with him. I'm still relating to how he's feeling and why he would have done something so ridiculous in the first place. Because in his mind, it's not ridiculous. Now, maybe your teenagers aren't eating out of trash cans, but they're doing things that you think is irrational or ridiculous, but you can still empathize with them and meet them where they're at and give them choices instead of just saying, like, knock it off, quit it. Why do you have to be so dramatic? Blah, blah, blah. It's really good. Thank you, Jill. Uh, we're going to keep moving. And you may have covered some answers to these questions yeah. I'm about to ask, so I'm not offended if you're like, eh, I kind of said everything <laughs> I wanted to yeah. say there. But I want to make sure that you get a chance to share as much wisdom with us as possible. So how can parents change family dynamics and their parenting philosophy to help a child be less anxious? Is that kind of what we were just talking about with the three C's? Yes, but I can add to that um, just take some time to think about what your family really values and prioritize those things. I think sometimes in the busyness of our culture, we get lost in the GPA and the sports teams and, you know, how you act in public and all of this stuff that uh, we forget what our family really values is like, am I instilling character into my child? Am I teaching them how to thrive as an adult? Um, Am I, if you're a Christian, it might be like, am I really reflecting how to know and love Jesus in life? And all of that may be way more important than your, your GPA or what college you get into or whether you make varsity. And, and so I just really want to encourage parents. Like, I know it seems stressful in the moment and it seems like a big deal in the moment, but with those little things we navigate day to day, if we can step up and just have a bird's eye view of our kids I think it can help them not have so much anxiety if we can shift the family dynamics to, like, what really matters. Like, at the end of the day, yeah, you made a dumb mistake. That was stupid. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that. You know, we're going to – you're still going to have a consequence for that or whatever. Um, but, like, at the end of the day, I don't have to um, just be so controlling over, the, like, the image or the little things going on with our kids, I think – all of that in the big picture can fade away. And like what we really want to be left with is like, am I instilling what we really value as a family? Um, So again, I think maybe the silver lining in this pandemic is that parents will have the opportunity to really say, are we living out our values? Like if my kids were quizzed today on what do your parents value the most or what do your parents nag you about the most or what do they care about the most? You know, what is my kid's response going to be? Is it going to be that, that I'm a caring person you know, is it going to be that, that I have a strong faith, you know, or that I'm responsible? Or is it going to be, you know, well, they really want me to get good grades or they really want me to, you know, get into this college or whatever. And you're not suggesting that parents shouldn't care at all about their kids' academics, right. but it's a matter of priority. Well, and I think parents may think that they're doing a really good job of reflecting their values, but the kids aren't always perceiving it that way. So a lot of times the, the kids can feel these really high expectations or a lot of this pressure that the parent's not doing purposely. And maybe, maybe the child is misreading what the parent's messages are. Um, but again, if you open up those lines of communication, um, a lot of those assumptions can be taken care of. And that can take a lot of pressure off of the child because they're already getting that pressure from the media, from the Internet, from their friends, from their coaches, they're getting pressure from themselves. I see a lot of kids that are perfectionists and they put so much pressure on themselves that I think as parents, the best way we can shift family dynamics is to just create a space for a lot of grace. 
um, and, and a lot of like big picture mentality of what really matters. And am I reflecting that in the way I'm interacting with my child or am I losing, <laughs> am I losing it over this C that they brought home, you know? So now that they shouldn't care, but like putting it into perspective and am I communicating that well to my child? Some kids might be a little too young to answer a question like this, but talk about a a great question to open up some deep dialogue at family dinner sometime would be for parents to ask their kids, what do you think is important to us? Mm-hmm. And just, just lay, leave it there and see yeah. what the kids say. Totally. Another thing I thought of as you were sharing is the first three examples you gave are not really available right now. So you said sometimes parents can value grades, mm-hmm. athletic accomplishments, or they care a lot about how their kids act in public. And all three of those are kind of off the table right now. Right. So, so again, and you already mentioned, we've already talked about some silver linings from this unique time in our lives. This could be a, a time where families are forced to rethink what's important to them because things that, even though we may not have admitted were important to us, mm-hmm. are being forcibly removed as things for us to, to really put value in. And, and it's causing some some a healthy amount of of rethinking yeah i think so yeah what are what are practical coping skills and tools for children to manage stress and anxiety and we've hit on that a little bit but what would you add yeah so um one thing that the parents can do is practically set boundaries so because the kids aren't having that fully developed prefrontal cortex they're not going to set boundaries for themselves so you're not going to have a teenager be like, you know what, I think I'm just going to do an hour of screen time today and call it good. Like they, they struggle with that self-control. So if you know that something is causing your child anxiety or it might be making their anxiety worse, like setting boundaries around those, those things. So maybe you say like, okay, you can, you can be on your phone, but you can't be on any device or electronic in your room. If you're going to use it, you need to be out here in the family or in the kitchen or whatever. And so it's, it's encouraging the child to not just isolate, but it's also if they want to be in their room and have some privacy and be away from everyone, which they probably will, they're not taking their device in there with them. So then they're having to do things that might be more self-care, like playing their guitar or journaling or reading, you know, or something where they're not just like glued into the overstimulation and the craziness of all of that. Um, some other practical things are what I call, this is another three thing, the three O's. So writing out all the things that you're worried about and that you're anxious about, and then looking over those things. And if they fall into one of the three categories of others, outcomes, or old stuff, then those are things that we don't have control over that we need to let go. And that's pretty much 99% of the things we worry about is other people, old stuff, stuff that's already happened that you're ruminating about, but you can't change. It's in the past or outcomes. What's going to happen? Am I going to get this? When's school going to come back? Like, are we still going to be friends when all this is over? Like that sort of thing, those outcomes, we don't have control over. We can't predict the future. We can't, we can influence outcomes. Like if I brush my teeth, I might not get a cavity. I can influence that, but we don't have total control. And so a lot of times just writing those out and saying, okay, are those others outcomes or old stuff? Then I can let all that go. Like I can close my journal or I can end that conversation with that person and I don't need to take it with me. So I think doing the three O's is helpful. Um, Which I'm going to jump in here. Outcomes is one that I think a lot of us are really learning about right now. We, man, there's a lot we don't know about outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
And then the other practice I would encourage people to do is mindfulness. That's just being aware and acknowledging your thoughts, your feelings, your circumstances in the present moment. So not ruminating about the past, not worrying about the future, just being here. So mindfulness is me being aware of where I am right now. I'm talking to you. I'm not thinking about, like, what are my kids doing? Are they down for their nap? What am I going to make for dinner tonight? You know, I'm here. I'm present. I'm practicing mindfulness. We can do that um, through deep breathing, through prayer, um, through just being still. I mean, like, all of those things can just help us just be in the moment. So if you've never done mindfulness before, if you're a newbie at it, I would say just start with your five senses. So what are, I call it five, four, three, two, one. So what are five things I see, four things I hear, three things I feel, two things I smell, one thing I taste. And if you can just name those in the moment, it's just a really quick exercise that just takes all of that stuff that your brain is thinking about and just zeroes it into this, this present moment. I see the water bottle. I see Joe. I see the carpet. And you're just here. And it helps to train your brain to just manage the current moment, which is really all we have control over anyway. And if you can train your brain to do that, then you're going to be a lot less anxious because we get anxious when our brain goes to the past or the future and doesn't stay here. So we can't be a monk and be like practicing mindfulness 24-7, but we can get better at that discipline so that our brain grows in its strength and its ability to cope with stress. It's really, really good. Even as you were saying that, I was like, what am I, what am I experiencing right now? What am I tasting? What am I seeing? What am I yeah, hearing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just think of how much more you enjoy a meal when you're thinking about, like, what the flavors are. You're tasting it. You're smelling it. You're noticing the texture of it. Like, how nicely it's displayed on the plate at the restaurant. Rather than just being on the phone and eating really quick. You know, it's like your whole experience is different. It's more enjoyable. And, and. And I think we need to practice that more. And and we can't teach our kids how to do that unless we're doing it ourselves. So that table conversation is a great way to get your kids present at dinner. You know, what's one thing that you're proud of yourself for from today? And what's one thing you would have done different? Or with the little kids, I do sugars and boogers. Your sugar is like the best <laughs> thing that happened that day. Your booger is like the worst thing. And it just gets you talking and it gets you um, just being present with each other. And pr- practice that practice. Practicing that mindfulness is another skill that might be uh, in a typical situation difficult for us. But again, maybe another silver lining right now, we have ample opportunity, mm-hmm. extra extra opportunities yep. for, for mindfulness. And I'm, I don't have time to get into how to do this, but you can always Google 478 breathing. And it teaches you how to breathe four seconds in, hold it for seven counts, exhale for eight, and how to breathe with your diaphragm. And all of that helps to calm your body and your mind. And so even just learning how to breathe different, you can do that anywhere. You can breathe when you're in traffic or when you're stuck at home or when you're in the grocery line. Um, so four, seven, eight breathing is another way to um, help yourself sleep at night, help yourself calm down if you're feeling anxiety, all that. This is a nice dovetail. What are helpful resources to use to manage stress and anxiety? Mm-hmm. So the nice thing about the internet, I don't want to bash the internet because it has some nice nice qualities to it, is all the apps out there now. So there are meditation apps out there. Um, I've listed them in the handout I think you're going to make available. Um, but there's one called Calm. There's one called Headspace. One that I have is called Abide. 
And you can choose like if you want to listen to like a waterfall in the background or whatever, but it leads you through a meditation where you're just focusing on one calm thing and, and really disciplining your brain to do that. Um, so I would use apps. Um, there's a workbook out there that I really like to use called the Anxiety Workbook for Teens. You can just get it on Amazon. And it, it, it really goes through all the different like symptoms of anxiety and what the trigger might be and how they can calm themselves and how they can manage their anxiety. Because remember, the point isn't to like not feel anything or not feel anything unpleasant. You know, you're going to have hard feelings in life. You're going to go through stressful stuff. The point is to build up your ability to cope with it and manage it and move through it. Um, so workbooks like that are really helpful. And I think the workbook for teens even has a journal that you can get to go with it that has prompts for the teen to write about. Um, and they don't have to share that with anybody, but it's good for them to reflect and process through so they can start to understand what's going on with them so that they can manage it better. Because most of the people that come into my office don't understand why they're feeling what they're feeling or even how to get a hold of it. So things like that can be um, super helpful. And parents, these resources that Jill is talking about are accessible to you for free. There's There'll be a link in, in the video in the description below for you to mm -hmm. access those resources. Yeah, and one of the things you asked me before was, how do I know when when my child is dealing with like clinical anxiety you know, maybe generalized anxiety disorder or separation anxiety or a panic disorder or something like that. Um, when do, how do I know when they need therapy or medication to kind of help them navigate this? Um, and so a good resource would be uh, going to a therapist. And fortunately, since anxiety is so common, almost every therapist is is well experienced with it and and, and, and an expert in, in that area. So they could always go to a therapist and say like, we, we need to, we need something more. We've been doing these things. I've been as a parent implementing these things. You know, I've been connecting with my child. I've been empathizing with them. I've been using the three O's mm -hmm. and the three C's and we've been practicing four, seven, eight breathing. This is beyond that. They can't even, these things are great, but it's not enough for what my child needs because their anxiety is beyond what they can, what they can manage on their own. Um, and so that's when I would say it's at the point where if you're trying these things and it's not helpful, then there might be something more deep-seated going on and something that needs to be addressed in therapy. Or it might be those neurotransmitters and those chemicals in the brain that are really off that are causing that amygdala to be firing all the time and overactive. And that's something medication can help with. So I would always recommend going through these things in a counselor before trying medication because there's always a downside to medication with side effects and things like that, especially in kids. But, but there's also a time and place for it. If, if your child is really struggling and, and they could see a therapist or they can be on a medication that's really going to help them get back to feeling like themselves again and enjoying life, then absolutely, those resources are out there. That's, I think that's really empowering for parents to hear that they, they have some things that they can try with their kids first. And, and then, if needed, they can move on to finding a, a licensed therapist, um, right. potentially medication. But what I hear you saying is those things don't have to be the, the first option. Right. There's, there's things that, that they can do in their home on their right. own and I think walk gives, through it with their own kids. It gives parents a lot of peace knowing we did all the first line uh, treatments and now we're needing to go to something else. Like yeah. it helps them know I didn't just jump right to this. Um, 
but I also don't think parents need to feel any shame about their kid being in counseling or having medication. Like we're broken people living in a broken world. And just like you can, your pancreas cannot work right. And you have diabetes, your brain cannot work right too. And you can have anxiety. And so it's not anything to feel shame about. And I think if the parent feels embarrassed or ashamed or has anxiety about that, guess what? The kid's going to feel that too. Then they're going to feel shame about struggling with something that they didn't cause, you know, and that's going to cause a whole nother slew of issues in that child for them to feel shame about something that they don't need to feel ashamed of, but they might need treatment so that they don't have to battle that anymore. Um, so I would say absolutely like go and explore that. And there's resources in that handout too of great counselors, um, that they could see that, you know, could help give them skills and tools that they could use the rest of their life when they go through anything hard, you know, and that, that's the hope so that they can be more resilient when they go through hard things. That's great. I, we, we actually reached out to, uh, to, to our parents to see if they had any questions. And, and there was one parent that sent in a, a really great question that, uh, I'd, I'd like to, to get your input on. This is, uh, a parent who wants to know, do you, do you have insight? What do you recommend when, when kids isolate themselves in their room and refuse to engage in conversation or family time? And this parent, I think, is specifically, they, they want to respect their child's desire and willingness to be alone. Right. But they also don't, at some point, that can become an unhealthy thing. So. Right. How do you know when you've crossed that line with the child and, and what do you do? Yeah. It's How a, hard do you push, you know? It, there, isn't, there isn't a clear answer because what, what is normal for one kid might not be for another. And so it's not fair to say, well, it's normal if they spend two hours in their room but not three. You know, um, so I think the, the, the best answer is, is yes, they need time and space away, especially if they're a teenager and they're, they're trying to become more independent. Um, but the, the most concerning thing is when you see a a drastic shift in your child. So if your child's an introvert and they go in their room and spend hours, you know, writing songs and poetry, that's not a concern. But if, if your child is normally, um, you know, engaging and around and connecting with people and all of a sudden they start spending a lot of time in their room, that's when there's more of a concern. When, what it's not typical for your child is now what you're seeing, um, that's when you want to just kind of be more attuned to what's going on with them. Um, but at the same time, I, what I hear you saying is you, you can't say what's normal for each t- child, but generally for all kids, the older they get, there is a gradual increase in right. their desire to be alone. Yes. My children are little and they never want to be without me. <laughs> they will follow me into every room and into the bathroom and I literally can't get away. So, um, it's very different when they get older. They start to see more of that. But like I said, you can always set a boundary, and that's not a mean thing to do, is you can go to your room anytime you want, anytime you need space, but you're not going to take your phone in there with you or you're not going to take your computer in there with you. you know. And so there's, it's not to manipulate your child of like, you have to spend time with me, but it's to teach them I'm loving you through boundaries because I know what's best for you, and what's best for you isn't to be locked in your room all the time away from any sort of interaction with people. But you also can't force your child to interact with you. So instead of your mindset being on the outcome and the other person that you can't control, those are two of the three O's, that's going to get a parent really worked up. 
if they root themselves in what they can't control, it's like whether or not my child likes hanging out with me or whether they want to spend time with me, instead shift your focus into am I being approachable? Am I making myself available to my child? Am I connecting with them? Am I learning about what they're interested in? And am I getting interested in that too? I'm not interested in Pokemon, but my kids are. So I'm learning about it so that I can talk to them about it, so I can play it with them, so that I know if they want, if I was going to give them a gift, I would know what they would like. Like, that's just part of part of it with with teenagers is they're not going to easily come to you because they're they're gaining that independence. But a parent can connect with their teenager by getting interested in what they're interested in, by asking them about it, by learning about it. Um, by making space in their day where they can spend time with their teenager. Because sometimes they say, well, my teenager never hangs out with me. But then I talk to the teenager and they're like, my mom is always on her phone. You know, my dad's always watching ESPN. Like, and, you know, it's like a lot of times as parents, we don't realize what we look like to our kids. And a lot of times we look unavailable or uninterested. They're trying to tell us about this new band that they're into. And we're like, oh, that's kind of weird they do that? Oh, that's what their music is about? Okay, whatever. What do you want for dinner tonight? And we just dismiss it. And so I think we don't do it purposely, but it could be helpful. And I'm not saying this parent isn't doing the right thing, but just being more intentional about how can I connect with them? How can I make make space for a relationship to grow so that the child wants to spend time with them instead of making it like a forcing, like, you have to sit here and hang out with me. You know, it's like you might be getting the outcome you're wanting, but you're missing the point. And now your child can't wait to get away because you just force them to come and, like, I know, hang out with you. So maybe you could set a boundary, like, every Sunday night we're going to have family game night and it's not optional. That's fine, you know. But that can't be your, like, criteria for am I being a great parent or not or am I helping my child with their anxiety or depression, you know. I think it has to start with, like, our relationship. Do we have a healthy relationship? And if we don't, what do we need to do to kind of work on that? And that's something they can go to a counselor for, too. Sometimes I just do family therapy with a family where they're a family, but they don't feel like a family because everybody's in their separate rooms doing their own thing, and they don't know how to connect and have relationships. So sometimes that's just where the healing happens, too. I love that. As we're wrapping up, you you kind of landed on that emphasis on it really comes down to a relationship between parents and their kids. And hopefully what we've been talking about today helps parents develop a, a closer relationship with their kid so that when kids are going through stress and anxiety, it happens in the context of relationship. Yeah, when kids are going through anxiety, what they're craving is certainty and familiarity and security. And and those things come through relationship. And so it's the same thing in our relationship with God. Like, you know, he says, do not fear. He wants us to trust him and that comes through our relationship with him. That can't just come through, well, I do the right thing, and I'm a good Christian, so so I don't have any anxiety or fear. No, it comes through a relationship that over time develops trust and faith. And and I think it's the same way in our parent-child relationships. Is like It comes through that relationship is where that child feels safe, and they feel heard, and they feel validated, and they feel loved, and they feel that security. And that can help so much with the anxiety. So it's not an easy answer, and it takes, you know, a lot of intentionality, but it's really what's going to help in the long run. Jill, this is great. As we wrap up today, is there anything else that you want to share with parents? Um, have grace for yourself. Um, 
I know we focused on a lot of the things the parents can do today, but I don't want the parents to feel stress and anxiety of like, oh, I have to do all these things. We have to have grace for ourselves too. We are broken humans who don't have it all together. And if we can just be honest about that and accept that, um, we're going to help our kids way more than if we act like we have it all together and we're just hustling, hustling, hustling to do all the right things. So I think as parents, we also just have to have grace for ourselves, especially in a time like this. This is something none of us know how to do is a crisis, like, like a pandemic. And so just, um, having grace for yourself and forgiving yourself if you mess up and ask your kid for forgiveness. If you mess up, if you say like, I'm so sorry, I think what I did earlier today was I totally dismissed your feelings and I wasn't listening and, and I disagreed with you and I was more focused on that than trying to hear your perspective. And that was wrong. Will you forgive me? That's a really humble, vulnerable thing for a parent to do, and that might be really hard, but that's going to be the best thing for their kid and for their relationship to model that for their child. And so if you mess up, just have grace for yourself and and forgive and ask somebody else to forgive you if you hurt somebody else. But um, we're all navigating something we've never been through before, so I think we just need to have a lot of grace for ourselves. Well, Jill, you've given us tools and, and ideas and encouragement that's going to help parents navigate this new new normal that we find ourselves in and and even far beyond because once once we start returning back to a sense of normalcy and we don't know what that's going to look like but uh you know even in 6 12 18 months 2 3 years down the road kids are still going to be facing stress and anxiety and so i know these things are especially applicable for now but they're going to help for years down the road so Thank you for everything. And parents, thank you for joining us today. I hope that this has been helpful and encouraging and and beneficial for you. If you found this helpful, we would really love if you shared this with other parents, whether you texted them or called them and let them know about it or just shared it on, on Facebook or social media to get this resource out to as many parents as possible. And, and parents, we we really do, we care about you, and we're here for you, and we want to help and support you, and and so we're, we're thankful that we were able to, to offer this for you today, and um, thanks. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.